Hi everyone and welcome to the Curve Mindset Podcast in partnership with McGinley Coaching. I'm your co-founder and host, Laurie McGinley. Today we're joined by Phil Denton. How are you, Phil? Hi, Laurie. Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me on. No worries. Uh, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Um, yeah, yep. So um, I am a head teacher in a secondary school in the northwest of England. Um, I've done a lot of uh, football coaching over the years as well. I kind of worked... Um, around the world a little bit and um, mostly in um, the Middle East so I, I taught in Saudi Arabia and set up a football club there called Jeddah City so um, I, that was where I kind of really honed my coaching skills um, and um, I came back to England and decided that it wasn't something that I could really pursue if I wanted to pursue a headship so um, I, I decided that I would go purely down the education line um, but I suppose most interestingly in the last couple of years is I've uh, uh, combined the two and written a football book with um, the Tramier manager Mickey Mellon um, called The First 100 Days and um, that's uh, that's been a really exciting journey to be on meeting some of the some of the Premier League's um, biggest managers Oh definitely and you talked about like seeing you obviously travel the world you know you've got so many transferable skills you know from education to kind of sport what could you tell us a bit more about that yeah that, that, that's sort of where it came from really i think a lot of the top managers you hear other than being teachers um and, and i can see why teaching is something where you you have to convey an idea or, or or interest or passion amongst a group of people that might not be the most ready for it in a, in a school classroom so that gives you a lot of skills in terms of communication, breaking ideas down, um, talking through processes that can be used in coaching. Um, I think I think you see a lot of people like the Cowley brothers or, um, I mean, there was good historical examples like Jared Hulia or Louis van Gaal, people like this, that were actually teachers uh, before they went into to coaching. And, and uh, I think the reason for that is that, that ability to have to communicate with a difficult audience um, and at times an audience that might not be that inclined to want to improve themselves right there and then. Um, so the transferable skills are all there and, it, and they're there for all walks of life. And traveling around the world, you, you end up meeting people with different cultures. And you, so you understand a lot more about what makes them tick and what their motivations might be. Uh, I, I've also done a lot of reading around things like leadership and coaching and, um, and and motivation and aspects like that so it's been something that's been a real passion of mine for years yeah and one of the biggest things you talk about communication that you know like we i see a lot of uh, there's so, different, so many different types of communication you know working with youngsters and you know working at the highest level do you think that having that you know the short 30 second you know pieces of information is key these days or do you think like you see a lot of coaches wanting to rant and have that 10 minutes and I always remember listening to Eddie Eddie Jones he talked about 15 minutes and that's it no, it was only five six slides in a presentation and that was it and that's only the, the players can you know soak in do you think that's the same kind of from coaching and teaching very much just short sharp versus information yeah, I mean, it depends really. There's, there's, there's different ways. So if you're looking for in a high-pressure situation where it might be just before a kickoff, you you might want three key bits of information, but you don't want to overload people. 
there are some times when you're teaching, when you might give a, a long narrative, you might get people drawn into a story. So my subject's history. So if you're talking about history and you want to draw somebody into the causes and consequences of an event, you want them to feel like they're there. You want them to feel as if they understand the characters and relate to one of them. If it's something that's operational, you know, I know Mickey talks, one of the things that Mickey talks about a lot is you don't leave the back four unless you can affect the play. Now, that's something that you can repeat and then they can repeat on the field, field of play. So if it's operational, yeah, definitely. But I think that in, in terms of communication, one of the quotes that I really like is um, uh, Stephen Covey. He talks about seek first to understand before you're understood. So that's understanding the people, understanding what kind of mode of communication is going to help them and understanding the situation that you're in as well. So that's crucial to any, any bit of communication, the, the, the context of it, before you decide how you're actually going to deliver it. And then you might deliver it and it might not work. You know, you can, you can have all the best things in the world, all the best ideas in the world. Um, the best plan, it might have worked a hundred times before, you do it the same way, you communicate it in the same way, and it doesn't work. And I can tell you from teaching, you can have the same lesson, same topic, the same year group, you can teach it in the same way and have two completely different reactions from two different groups of students. So um, you need that ability to reflect as well on why it might have worked with the individuals you had at the time and why it, it didn't the, the next time. Yeah. So I think you had to completely agree 100%. Like, I think communication is so important. And, and coaching coaches can learn a lot from teachers and teachers can learn a lot from coaches too. No, and I agree because the, the one thing I'm always obsessed with is um, I love um, uh, foreign languages. You know, like I, I, was, I, I was very good at French in school. I was okay in Spanish in school. Then I kind of left it for five, maybe five years and then started to you know, learn about Spanish again, on and off, and now in the last two years, you know, I've not missed a, you know, a lesson, you know, in my Duolingo, and it's only 15 minutes, but when you went to, obviously, Saudi Arabia, and can other countries, sometimes English is not the first language, it is maybe the second or third, but using short, sharp, you know, pieces of information, you know, like, I always remember the documentary that uh, Gary Neville gave in uh, Sky Sports, and he he was basically wanted to get a Valencia job and he, he tried to speak fluent, you know, um, Spanish to the players and the Spanish, the, the players are just like, no, just tell us short, sharp pieces of information like press or pass or, you know, go to the, you know, go to the right, go to the left. And we prefer that than someone trying to, you know, muddle their way through a conversation. Do you think having that kind of, having maybe... If you go to a different country, having that kind of second language is key when it comes to if you can't communicate properly through your language, but speaking their language, but using like body body language, um, you know, hand gestures. Do you think that's the kind of key aspect in the world we're living in at the moment? Because English is it's pretty much the spoken language in the world, but having that Spanish, you know, or the French or German, you know, just a touch of that, you may be able to just speak to that person in their native tongue and they might, might give you a wee bit more of that extra, you know, 5% on the pitch. Yeah, I think that, that's what, so when I worked in Saudi with Jada City, they were a semi-pro team, but we used to play professional teams. We played some of the Asian Champions League 
uh, reserve teams and we did really well and we had Saudi national players that came down to train with us. It was because a lot of the stuff that, that, that um, we were doing was based on the UEFA courses that I was doing at home. So they looked at, they looked at the setup of it. But yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with those Valencia players really. So I remember, you know, if in, in Arabic I knew Yamin and Yassar, which is left and right, and Irfa, which is um, cross, you know, cross the ball, you'd say Irfa, and you want to get it, you'd basically get it in the box sort of thing. But you, you when you talk, when it was before the game and we were talking about, right, let's keep the possession at the back so we'll draw them out and then we'll play through the, play through the lines. Then I have my, um, my captain and I'd say it to him then he'd say it but it, it more but the, but the lads on the team um, you were communicating like you say with you can communicate a lot with well done clapping your hands smiling looking at somebody they know what you mean um, even if they if they don't know the exact words and they, and they pick them up and we kind of picked up those those um, short phrases between us Um but when you when you're delivering something which is longer and you've got more time and there's ability for the player to listen, then yeah, it, it, it's useful to have that fluent language. But most of the time in a match, the short sharp things or just before a game, they know what you want them to do and they can see from the training. So you don't need it to to a, to a great degree. But I think having that ability to communicate and again just. I've read a lot about Brendan Rodgers in the book called The Manager by Mike Carson and in that Brendan Rodgers, Brendan Rodgers talks about players walking around with a big sign on the head saying do you do you care about me or I want you to care about me so if you care about the players they can that, that transcends um, language if you're bothered about them getting better if you smile when they arrive and you give them a pat on the back when they do well that transcends any kind of fluency of language I think um, but it's really important for people to have a, an advocate. I think if you do go to a foreign country, that can that can explain that. But not just a foreign country as well. You know, you might be coaching in a different part of of Great Britain, and you might, you know, Manchester and Liverpool. You know, I live in Manchester, but I have a lot of family over Liverpool Way. They're very different cultures, um, and I know that if you were to deliver some things in the way that a Mancunian would deliver it, it might be different differently received in, um, in 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 Liverpool. So I think um, it's really important to understand cultural differences when you're communicating as well. Yeah, and that kind of covers leadership, you know, and, and the kind of there's different types of leadership. You know, so bureaucratic, autocratic, you know, these, I always think the, or, you know, diplomatic, you know, you just think the, the middle one is always the best one because you still have the final say, but having that, we are thinking, you know, this might work, but let's have a discussion about it. Not a major discussion, but just it could be something that's maybe could be, you know, you say like the captain may say something or you might get something that might just not be the right way. But you have to have that kind of middle ground. But there still has to have better respect. But how, how would you describe uh, leadership and what kind of makes a good leader? Um, I think there's... Um, first of all, a good leader always has a strong purpose. So one of the things that we talk about in the in the book that we found when we met people like Sean Dyche and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and David Moyes and Sam Allardyce is, is that they have a really strong sense of purpose. They, they all do, regardless of the, the longevity of their success. They understand exactly why they're doing what they're doing in that situation. Then other the, the leaders that do exceptionally well um, get the right people around them, 
um, and understand um, the, the people that they have. And they understand the people that aren't the right people, but are people they've got to deal with anyway. Because, you know, in every in every squad, there's probably, or every office or building, there's probably somebody in your team who you think, well, if I had the option to change them, I, you know, I, I might well do that. Um, so there's that purpose, understanding your people, looking at who your captains are. So, so one of the things that we, we found a lot was that people... Um, are led by other people in the team. So Alex Ferguson's a great example with Roy Keane. So Roy Keane set the standards. Um, I was at Old Trafford last night with my little boy and they unfurled a massive banner with standards and it had, you know, Keane and Robson on the banner and they were very much captains by, by name but also captains by nature. So figuring out the leaders, great leaders figure out who the captains are in their team. So so I did it in my school, who are the captains that, that other people are going to look up to. Um, and then they understand, like I talked about before, about the position. So you understand the context that you're working in. So somebody like Sam Allardyce is amazing at this and he talks, it, talks through it with such clarity. When he walks into a team that's struggling in the Premier League, he understands the position that they're in. He communicates that to the players and he starts to work on small elements that help them to improve and almost work from a blueprint. So, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's understanding what your purpose is, who your people are and what position you're working from. And then finally, and I say kind of a link, a list of P's here, but the final P is then you prioritise what are the most important things you need to do, what are the urgent important, what are the important but not urgent just yet and working through them and then crucially what you know what what is not important and not urgent that you can just stop doing so that that's why i would i would kind of kind of three p's followed by a a fourth which is so it's it's purpose people position and then that leading to prioritizing the the biggest obviously right now is um, you've got different coaches are prioritizing you know the uh, yeah, first team coach would priority is to win, you know, because it's the pressure. But some of them uh, like to prioritise in working with the person, you know, more like the youngsters. You know, like you've got a lot of um, good coaches out there who focus on working with the, the young players. You know, like obviously the you've got Ralph Ranick who's come in and his, you know, the Red Bull model was very much under twenty threes. You know, to try and develop that. But in Man United, it's very much a, you know, sometimes there is a bit of an individual, you know kind of sona around things. Do you think that's having some having that kind of personality, you know, off run, you think that will work, you know, for the next six months until they, they get someone in? Or do you think it's more of a, just a stopgap and then they'll just, obviously he's going to, I think he's going to be a consultant upstairs, you know, to help out. But do you think having, using them, the three Ps plus the fourth P will help Man United in the long term? Because, Obviously, you've seen. I've read the Alex Ferguson book, the new one. It was excellent, but it always talks about you know standards, as you said, but also having that changing the the assistant every three years, changing the the players, but making sure that there's an academy player in every you know every every uh, squad. Do you think having that strong leadership, you know, has gone away from Man United a little bit? You know, in the last maybe five years, you know, but just between the. Um, so Alex Ferguson and then probably to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer you know the Louis Van Hal, the, the the Jose Mourinho do you think they've just kind of ripped that that DNA up a little bit uh, well I think yeah Fergie was um, uh, he, 
he led. It was such a, a he was such a presence in the club, and still is. You know, it, it very much when you remove that, when you remove something like that from an organisation, there's going to be that big void. Um, I think there there are successes. The managers that have come since have uh, they've had successes along the way. Um, there's been trophies. There's been you know high high positions in the league. So it's not been an abject failure, but it's not ever reached the, the heights that that Fergie achieved. Um, and then I think when when Oli came in, and it was really interesting talking to him about his first hundred days. He brought the club back to a place of of cultural alignment. Um, and then then I think the next phase of that is what they're looking to bring in with with um, Rangnick, which is the. The, the use of um, an evidence based of data of um, of a particular approach and style that that, that they can re- recruit to. Holly described it when we were there. He said it's a bit like um, opening your cupboard up at home and seeing that you've got shopping from Waitrose and Aldi and Tesco's, and then having all these ingredients and trying to make something from it. Um, and I think they need to have. A clarity of of, um, of play or a range of uh, approaches they're going to have. You know, if you look at Liverpool, they've got the 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 way that they play, which is the energy press. You look at Chelsea, the way that they play, it's direct, it's through the middle, with the wingers up, and that's that's still the case from when Mourinho was there. You know, they've recruited to that system. City's exactly the same. The way that Pep does, they've they've created a, a football and approach. Um, so I think I think it is the right approach for them to take. It's not going to be an overnight thing. They need to start um, looking at exactly who, what sort of players they need to move them forward in the future. So I think it's really interesting, and they just need to make sure I think that the next person is aligned to that and understands that, but also that they they trust them. Because if you remember, Pep in his first um, uh, few months at City, there were times when it didn't go as well. But they they stuck with him and said, you know, we we trust in you that you're going to do. Klopp would be the same, you know. It wasn't all sunshine and lollipops immediately when he was there as well. He had to move some people on, you know. If you think about some of the players when he arrived, they weren't the ones he wanted. So it takes a bit of time, and that's what United have got to accept um, at the moment. And 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 the players that they've got are not the right players for the system that they want to play by the looks of things. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that. Okay, well, let's scrap the system. If you if you're going to believe in that, then you've got to believe in it, and you've got to show those players that they're not the right ones for that system. And then, just from my opinion, you know, just for for what it's worth in the football stands, really. And then you've got to start recruiting to it. But you've got to help your the players there over the long term to get better at it, while also maintaining some kind of short term success, like they got last night. You know, they, they threw in the cup. It wasn't great. Um, but they there are definite improvements against that Villa side as opposed to the Wolves team the week before. Yeah, yeah. I watched the last te- I watched the last fifteen minutes of my wife describe the um, how the goal was there, then it wasn't, and then how the somehow it was offside, then it was a foul, and I'm like, okay, that's just uh, this is just Man United, you know, and I very much a circle within about five seconds, you know. But you know, yeah. she's, a, she's a big Man United fan, and she she, but I just. I was I was interested because they obviously you you talk about you know the kind of leadership but also it was something that um, I was reading obviously the first four games that um, Mikel Arteta you know he was basically asked that he was going to get looking to sack him potentially you know but there's a lot of 
I think it was the I think it was Fergie he talked about. I think it was one of the games too, where he thought he was going to get sacked. But do you think having that strong leadership is about holding your nerve? You know, not bowing down to pressure from players and the press. From obviously social media is a big thing now. Do you think that's in a, a manager? You know, it doesn't matter. Maybe the the highest level, but even at an amateur level, a semi pro level, having the holding your nerve. You know, let's say you go for. Uh, three five two, and it's working. And then it's um, the one of the players uh, in the opposition team is like just a one up front, but the two go and makes it a three v three. And I always say, can we hold your nerve to create that three v three? Because it's going to be a three v three, but there'll be an overload in the midfield if you defend well. But it's all about holding your nerve as a player, but also as a manager. And sometimes managers and coaches bow down to the pressures sometimes of. Players, so you say we need to go to a back four or we need to go into a back five. You know, just do you think having just holding your nerve and just letting that wave of pressure, you know, deal with it? Do you think that's a, a strong leader in there, or do you think that just kind of uh, there's a cut above the rest? You know, the one percent that or two percent that make it the highest level. Yeah, I, I think one of the things we looked a lot at is um, looking for continuous improvement, and that just being what something that you do. So having a system that you work to, that you pin your pin your trust in, you know how you approach, how you measure the players, how you approach the games, looking at but all, always looking to improve those approaches is is the process. So there's a lot where we talk about trust the process. Um, and there's a you know I, I don't know if you've heard of the famous American football coach Bill Walsh who took the 49ers from a yeah. two and fourteen season to the Super Bowl champions in a couple of years, and he talked about you know if you take care of the process the result will look after itself, yeah, um, and yeah it's great isn't it yeah. and you know and sometimes if, you, if everything's right if you've got the players nutrition right and you've got your backroom staff right and you've got your approach right and you've got your tactics right and you've done the right background and diligence, due diligence on the other team and the conditions and all that, you still might not win but you've got everything right it just might be you know like you watched that game last night Stephen Gerrard could come off and say there's not much more apart from being a bit more clinical here and there that we could have done we, we, they should have got something out of that and they probably should have won um so he's not going to go tomorrow and because they've lost three in a row and rip up his approach. He's going to say, right, let's get better at what we're doing, not let's change what we're doing because it, what they're doing is, is, is improving them. So absolutely, yeah, it's, it's trusting the process and trusting trusting your your core values and but always looking to improve it. There's, there's um, a model that Toyota use um, called the Kaizen uh, model, which is about continuous improvement. And when continuous improvement work just becomes your work, because that's what you do every day, then you can you can uh, really take hold of something and keep 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 improving it, looking for innovation, but but staying true to what what your core values are at the same time. Yeah, and that's one thing I'm always uh, we always thinking of the players, you know, like I, I'm a coach, you know, and it's just like okay, well, let's see if we can sometimes. You make a mistake, coaches, but I always say if you can control the controllables, then that's a thing. But like we worked, uh, I spoke to the players last night, and uh, they were just like we. There was a there was a penalty shootout, and I think what's this? We lost on the penalty shootout, but I said that's great. But see that way, 
I never see, I never criticise people, that's just not who I am, but Lizzie, we can work on things, let's try this idea, but it's the process of up to the penalty shoot, then the process for the first goal lost, how do we sort that out, and just breaking it down, and it was only two minutes we talked about it, because uh, I don't spend more than two or three minutes discussing what, uh, what can we improve on, but the trainers already set up to improve the, how, I always think it was Chris Ramsey who talked to me and he said, let's go for a strength-based approach, work on the strengths and then the weaknesses, you know, well, you'll improve your weaknesses as you improve your strengths more, but it's all about being uncomfortable, you know, trying new things, but trying to learn, do you know what, you're going to get, see that ball comes into you and it saves a hundred, one a hundred times and it happens, you have to have the composure, but again, that's just, that's repetition, repetition, repetition. You know, and it's all about trusting yourself. And a lot of players struggle with that because they, they, they need to, need to, this guidance from the, the side of the pitch. You know, you've done this, you do. But again, that all comes down to what kind of player you are, what kind of manager you are, what kind of, you know, who who do you look up to? And that kind of leads to the the, the question about you know, obviously, you got you created a book with Mickey Merlin, and I, I read it. And I must have read it in about three, uh, about two days. I, I, I didn't take it down. I, I must have. I've made. Uh, 10 pages worth of notes in it you know on my laptop just to see what it was like because it's, it's so interesting but why did you why did you um, you know uh, create the book it was the first, first 100 days uh, you know of the football losses why did you create that because it was it was such an interesting topic but nobody's really touched on it until you you know produced the book yeah it, well it, it was um, so Mickey and I met in a in a, uh, a gym in uh, Stevenage just before a Tramia game we, um, I'm a Tramia supporter I'd gone down to watch it um, and uh, I met him uh, in the morning of the game so we got chatting about the, the similarities between being a head teacher and being a, a football manager um, and then he said oh, I would, I'd love you to come and come into the club and have a chat with us I was amazing you know I'm a big Tramia fan so that was a real a real joy and eventually a couple of months uh, maybe I'm, yeah, a couple of months later we managed to get together because you know uh, headship's a busy job and football manager's a busy job so we, um, when we got together he, he started to talk about this idea um, we wanted to work on something a project together and he said I've always had this idea about the first 100 days of being a manager and all those the, the pressures that you can have as a manager are, are replicated in lots of other um, um, professions but as a football manager, you can't get away with the bad first hundred days, whereas you could in most of the walks of life. Um, so, so that's where it came from. That's where it came from, really. And then we wanted to just really explore leadership. So it is based around the first hundred days, but it, it's really exploring leadership and, and what we can learn from people and the really in the public eye. I, I think with football as well, it's something that is very. Um, uh, it. it, it People can see it. They can understand it. Um, so it's um, it's something they can relate to quite easily. So I think it's uh, it, it's a, it's a really good medium for, for for communicating ideas about relationships with people and uh, leadership and communication and all those sort of things. Because you can see it on a pitch. You can see it on the scoreboard. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I've got it in front of me because I, I was actually reading it uh, yesterday and the day before just to kind of because I'm back to uh, training it was it last week and I just wanted to familiarise myself with a bit more you know a little bit more motivation but you, you know you talk about like 
you know, the different chapters that was really, you know, the month before, the week before, then day one, and then obviously the first seven days, you know, it gets to all the way up to kind of judgment day, you know. Do you, th- how did you come up with all these kind of, you know, ways of thinking? Because it is such a, a variety, you know, one, week one you could be in the Champions League, you know, and then the week two you could be going down to, you know, travel, uh, you know, 100 miles, you know, to somewhere else, you know, and it's just like, how do you, seeing the first 100 days as a manager, how do you actually, what did you get from it, but also, how do you think that's, the book's helped a lot of managers, you know, because there's a lot of good managers out there, but they've never actually coached at a high level or a low level, do you think this book covers, you know, the amateur game, the semi-pro game, the, the professional game, because I certainly think it does, I think it just, it's just there's so many different tips in it which, you know, helps, you know, the the, the coach out there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've had some amazing feedback from Premier League managers to, to you know, Sunday League managers and everything in between, really. Uh, it's, been, it's been fantastic, you know, some really good quotes from people who said, you know, they wish they'd had this when they'd started the League One job or the League Two job. We've had... A Premier League manager who said he's he's read it in a day, sort of thing. So, it, really, really positive, um, positive feedback. And then a lot from educators as well. A lot from head teachers, uh, depth head teachers, middle leaders, teachers, co- football coaches. Like brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And it, and it, it's something that was a real privilege to write. Um, and really, really fun. So the, the the book's kind of a narrative on on my first hundred days and I, um, how I employed what I'd learned from these managers in my first hundred days as um, as a head teacher. Um so it, it was it was great to write as well and it, and it's brilliant that we've sold um we sold a good few thousand copies now and it, all the money's gone to multi neurone disease as well so it's supporting uh, the Len John Rose Trust. So it's it's gone to a great cause too and it's it's something that I think we're we're both well I know Mickey and I myself are both really proud of it. Um, it, and if nothing else, because we know it's helped some people, um, and um, um, it's it's just been a joy to actually write it. Yeah, and do you, obviously, you've, there's going to be difficulties and successes. What were the kind of difficulties and successes of the book? Because you know, it's, it is about mindset. You know, sometimes, and you, as you said, you're a busy person, and he's a very busy person. So, how did you try and? deal with the kind of difficulties or is it because you two are good friends that you just kept on plugging away at the book until you finished? Yeah, well, we believed in it. We believed that we were going to finish it and we're both, I think, really committed to it. But no, like with anything, I mean, this is what I would say, if you, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, you're with your, with your business, Laurie, and, and starting out with anything, you, you, you sometimes you, you've just got to believe in it and keep going. Um you know, it's it, because it is, and, and and it's great to have a book out. Amazing to see it, like in WA Smiths, and and see you know see it going up the Amazon chart when it came out and getting to like number one in the football charts and things like amazing. But the, there are times that nobody sees. There are times when you you're getting up at half five in the morning and thinking, right, I've got I've got to get this chapter done because we've just done this interview and I'm going to write for three hours and then. Then you're kind of pulling it apart and you'll share it with somebody and they'll say, actually, I think you need to rewrite a lot of this and, you know, you need to change this and it, it, I'm not I'm not connecting with it. And and you, and you have that feedback sometimes that, that you need and you mustn't ever not seek it out because it's what improves you. Um, but it, it's just having that 
that commitment really and saying right well we're, we're, we're going to do it we're going to finish it um, and we're going to keep trying to make it as, as good as it possibly can be so um, it, yeah it's like of that is the no life you know once you've got that purpose once you've got that thing that you're going after you, you you've just got to keep going haven't you you've just got to keep going at times and, and kind of see start with the end in mind um, that's, he's got a great Stephen Radcliffe book about start with the end in mind and I, and I really that's something I really subscribe to just keep going with that end vision of of holding that book and being able to give it to your kids and they and, and, and they can read it and have it for their and, and and see something that maybe maybe inspires them and then hopefully helps other people too. Yeah, and um, what do you obviously the kind of last two questions? What what does it take for a manager to survive the first hundred days? What's the advice? You know, in a very snippet, you know, elevator elevator pitch. You know, it's I think the the book covers it so well. But you know, from you. Obviously, from the conversations we just had, but also the you know from an education point of view and a manager's point of view, what is the kind of advice? Is it just look at the book and just try and pick out the parts that are relevant to that person, or do you think um, using different tools from the book will help you, you know, become that survive that first hundred days? Yeah, I mean, going back to what we what I said before, really, it's to. To, to survive it successfully or to give yourself the best chance of surviving it, you know, having a really clear idea on um, on what you're walking into. So so the best managers really do their homework. The first three chapters in the book, uh, or two chapters, sorry, are before day one. So they're all about homework and you can do your homework over, over a day or, or a week, but trying to get as much information as you can before you actually take up the role so that you know what you're walking into. Then from that, creating a purpose that's aligned with, with the stakeholders. So in football, it would be creating a purpose that's aligned with the owners, that's aligned with the, the, the with the supporters, um, with the board, with the players. Something so Ole Gunnar Solskjaer talked about, let's become Manchester United again. Now that might not be you know, he might not have spoke to the owners per se about that, but he would have spoke. To, he did speak to the CEO about it, um, and then that brought the players back into line and very quickly from from a situation that was quite uh, troubled. Um, and then getting those people, getting those understanding they were the key people. So people they'll follow the follower. So getting that that person, those people on board to say, right, we're we're gonna that you're my captain. So your purpose getting your captains, your people, understanding who were the, who were the people who were going to be um, right with you right from the start, the high-performing, highly aligned, who were your, who your um, high-performing but maybe not highly aligned that need that influence from a peer, from that captain to get them on board. What is it that's going to intrinsically motivate them? There's a great book about motivation called The Drive by Dan Pink. I'd really encourage people to read that if you want to understand a lot more about motivation. And then finally, you know, pitching it at the right position. Don't go into a, you know, we've seen that there's an example in the book about Frank de Boer when he went to Crystal Palace and tried to get them to play like Ajax without the players. And he, you know, I think he, I can't remember how many games it was now, but he got absolutely hammered, didn't he, for a few games, and then he was out the door, and it just didn't, it didn't align. It wasn't, it wasn't aligned with the position. It wasn't aligned with the people. It wasn't aligned with the purpose of the club, what they represent, and it didn't work. Um, so I think those things really, and then once you've got that, 
going back to again, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend the, 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 the Stephen Covey matrix, which is looking at when you're going to prioritize things. What are your urgent, important things that you need to do on day one that can give you those quick wins that can get people to visualize what your vision is? Then what are the not urgent but very important, which are your more longer? You know, in football, it's like 30 to what, 60 to 90 days time. What are the things that you're going to get in place? And then what are the things that are going to get in the way of those that, that might be busy work? So n- not urgent, but seemingly important and, and not urgent and not important. What are those things that are going, to, uh, are going to detract from what you're trying to achieve? So I think if you follow that kind of simple blueprint, it doesn't guarantee success. And, and people reword it in different ways and have different ways of expressing that that gives you the best chance of winning. So doing your homework, looking at those three Ps that lead to you, you prioritising what it exactly is that you need to do to, to give yourself the best chance of winning football matches or being successful in the office or wherever it might be. Yeah, and the final question is, um, what does a mindset mean to you? Um, I, I think I, there's, there's a great quote that, that I put up in the middle of our school, which is um, uh, one that I, I stole from... Um, um, where I worked in the States, which is attitude is everything. Um, having having the right attitude affects every aspect of your life. It can affect your mental health, your physical health. And sometimes it's tough to have it and you'll have ups and downs. And you know, there's a great author, Paul McGee, who talks about hippo time when you you might not be feeling the best, but you've just got to take that moment to, to reflect and, um, and, and and take some time just to take stock and appreciate that your mindset's not amazing at that time, but you need to go again. And, and writers like Drew Povey and speakers like that will, will talk an awful lot about mindset that I really engage with. Um, but to me, mindset is attitude and attitude is everything. Yeah, I agree. Uh, thank you again, uh, Phil, for taking the time to chat to us in the government uh, said podcast. No, thanks very much, Larry, and all the best with everything that you're doing.